Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In your week in IndyCar guest show, we have our man, two-time Indianapolis 500 winner, Ari Leyendijk, also a modern-day race steward in the NTT IndyCar Series. I think this is the second time, maybe third, maybe third. Ari has jumped on here for the good old week in IndyCar listener Q&A-driven show. Uh, always love talking with my man. He and I, <laughs> he and I came up in and around the same time. He's older than me, but nonetheless, uh, we were running in somewhat similar circles. Usually, me, however many years behind him. But, anyways, just love talking with the guy. So, thanks to the great questions you all sent in. Had about an hour or so. Ended up being, and we went all over the place. So, great stuff. Also, a huge thanks to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers for being the mighty fine patrons who make this show possible. Then also our good pals at torontomotorsports.com that look after all of our memorabilia and t-shirts and stickers and fun and Bell Racing Helmets USA that make our brain safe. So we have some really great partners here that, uh, that care for us. And, you know... It just helps with this little family conversation type thing that we do each week. It's not super formal. It's not meant to be super polished. And since we turn the format into something that is yours, and by we, I guess I mean me. I never stop saying that. I don't know why. Uh, as we turn this format over to you and just made it a listener Q&A show, it's just been awesome. Uh, really, uh, it's been so much fun for me. I don't know. My questions are lame. Yours are better. So it's really cool that we get to put them in front of folks every week. I think I haven't put out the call for questions. I don't know if I might do it tomorrow for Thursday or maybe just hold it to early next week. I'm not sure. But our good pal, another somewhat frequent visitor to the show, Team Penske race engineer, Indy 500 winning race engineer, Ben Bretzman, uh, winner of the most recent IndyCar iRacing Challenge event as a engineer, Ben Bretzman, is going to come on and talk to us about iRacing and all the really cool stuff that he's been doing there, helping his man, Simon Pagano, and then surely whatever other questions that come to mind. So still not sure if I'm going to cook that up for this week or if that might be held for next, but we know that our man, Big Ben, is going to be joining us here within a matter of days. Other than that... Really awesome to see my friends at Dinner with Racers pick up significant sponsorship from Valvoline. That just makes me so happy. In the middle of this pandemic, when we just read on a daily basis, Circuit A, sanctioning body B, Team C, let people go, fired, furlough, or otherwise. Boy, we don't hear about a lot of business getting done really makes me happy and really encourages me to know that uh, at least for uh, folks that are trying to put out good content and keep folks entertained, amused, or otherwise, that there's a really positive reaction on the business side as well. So you know how much I love my partners who take great care of us. I know how much you all are so kind in giving love to them for supporting what I do. And it's just awesome to see friends who already have great partners to add yet another one. So yay to the content creators. Other than that, I said all I got to say about our man Kyle Larson on the listener Q&A show and a bunch of your other funny, hilarious, insightful, poignant questions that I covered off there and posted earlier today. With all that said, let's get going here. Just let's go with our man, the hairy lunatic, Ari Leyendike. It is one of my favorite people who is committed to the truth and tells some awesome stories. He also wins a lot of motor races, and he's got a couple of really impressive rings to put on his finger. That's Ari Leyendike. How you doing, pal? I'm doing good, considering that we're all kind of locked up, but uh, doing great. Well, let's be efficient with our time, knowing that you're having to run from thing to thing, and get rolling here. First couple of questions. 
Folks want to know about you being a race steward. This comes in from Corey Matthews, who asks, Ari, what are some of the challenges of being a race steward that we wouldn't think about? Uh, first of all, we have about 25 screens, and at home you have one. Um, that's the big difference there. So we got, uh, let's say, let's just pick a race, St. Petersburg. You got 20, well, it didn't happen, but we would have had 26 to 27 cars going to turn one. And if there's contact and if there's uh, an off by somebody or if there's blocking at the start, um, all those things we have to kind of look for. And we can't take all day to do it. So there are many challenges out there. But, uh, you know, I don't say we pick up on everything. We also get a lot of help. So if uh, if a driver gets blocked by another guy, he will radio it into his team and his team will message it, message it to the race control, and then we get those messages, and then we, and they also give us a time, so then we can go back and say, okay, uh, car five got blocked by car six, and um, it happened probably in turn two or one. Uh, let's have a look, and then we can rewind and we can find every different angle of the cameras, uh, different uh, in-car camera, overhead shot, maybe helicopter shot, maybe. Um, and then if we find it and we see, yeah, he did block him. Um, if we haven't already noticed ourselves, then we can uh, impose a penalty. Um, the one thing, though, is that sometimes an incident happens on the track and there is no video to support it. And it happens, believe it or not, with all these cameras and everything we have. But the angle is either not right to see it correctly and then based on having no video evidence, there's no way we can make a call. If it's not, you know, obviously not clear for us what, what happened. So Let's go to a, another question here from Shauna Oakwood. She says, Ari, what's it like being a race steward in terms of changing your perspective on the sport after spending most of your life being a driver? And then she also wonders, any good stories about having to deal with drivers now as a steward in the heat of the moment? I always wonder stuff like that when you talk about drivers coming over, you know, mentioning through the radio, it's blocked, and yada, yada. Part of me is always wondering if you or Max Pappas or, you know, any former driver as a steward's like, just shut up and drive. I don't know if you say that to them, but in the back of your head, I can, I imagine that's what you say. But what about this? How's your perspective changed moving from the cockpit up to race control? Well, first of all, I always make the joke like I am now the guy that I used to hate. <laughs> and, uh, you know, immediately the drivers that are now driving and they were younger and they were watching us race and they go like, oh, man, Lion like was cool or, or he wasn't. And, uh, you know, Max was cool when he was racing. Now they don't look at you that way at all. They just look at you like this guy that's there. You know, he could be he could basically make your bad day go to an even worse day. And um, we always say to the drivers, hey, listen, we are not here to penalize you. We are here to help you. And what we do in a lot of cases, we'll go to a racetrack. And for instance, a couple of years ago in Sonoma, there was a white line entering the pit lane on the left side before the last turn. And you were not supposed to get on that white line. Well, then I take a video of guys that did go on the white line and I go, I take the video and I show it to, if I can get a hold of them and walk into their trailer and say, okay, listen, this happened today. This could be a penalty. Just try not to do it. Clean it so up. That you, that you and I don't have to see each other after the race. And so we try to help them as much as we can in order not for us to give them a penalty over some line that is, you know, easy avoidable and, and some other things. So, um, but then we do have a case where a driver got a penalty and they have a, within an hour of the finish, they have a chance to talk to us. And I always call that the one hour punching bag system <laughs> because basically they get in there, they're all hot, you know, they still, Adrenaline is going, and they're not always reasonable. And we just let them, we just let them vent, and then and you know get their anger out, 
And then we try to come to our senses, and then we try to explain by the way of video why we made this call. And um, I'm the first one to admit that we've made mistakes, and we admit it. We're like, sorry, you know, it wasn't that bad of a block as, as it actually was. Um, but we don't, we don't, uh, uh, we never argue in that regard that I always have a lot of respect for the guys. I understand where they're coming from. So I just let them vent. I don't get in their faces. They're the one that get into our faces and we just let it happen because we want to be the bigger guy. We want to show the example. They're all adrenaline rushed. We're not to a degree. So, uh, and then, you know, throughout the years, we've had a very few incidents with guys that got really hot and got really and lost their temper. We might have had one or two, but I obviously cannot tell you who that was. But um, Willpower. Yeah, no, understood. It's to be expected. It's to be expected. So, and it's, it's, it's not a problem. Um, it is difficult sometimes because I really get along with all these guys. I like all these guys. Uh, they might like me. I'm not sure. I think most of them do. And they can always come for help. But when you have to penalize somebody, it, it always hurts. I hate penalizing guys because I know how much it hurts. But if it was uh, deserved, then, you know, then that's what it is. If they did block somebody ridiculously, block them, then they deserve a penalty. And um, so, yeah, it's, uh, we have so many stories when it comes to the interaction with the guys, but I think my my best, the one that I'm the most uh, fondest of is basically trying to help them. And then I show them something on the video and they go like, oh man, I didn't know that. Thanks for showing me that. You know, then I feel that I contribute to the sport. Let's go to, where are we going to go next? Let's go to Heather Brown. It says, here's a question from my husband. It says, with your race steward hat on, how do you feel today about your 1995 Indy 500? Where you kind of flew the bird over 200 miles an hour and lost your headrest. Yeah, that would be a drive-through right there. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't have those rules back then. Ah. You know, back, back back then, it was all uh, a lot more, a lot looser. It was uh, uh, left up to the guys to take care of themselves. We didn't have spotters back then. Um, you know, it's so long ago, times have changed so much, but that today, that would not fly. That would be, A, a penalty for that gesture, and then, B, that would be a penalty for knocking the headrest out and causing the yellow, and that that could be the end of your race right there, basically. You would lose a lap with a drive-through, and you might even get a stop and hold for that, uh, for causing a yellow. Uh, several years ago, when Ari Jr. still was racing in Indy Lights, um, I did not knock the head race out on purpose, of course, but we did have somebody in Indy Lights who did that. And he was stripped of his uh, uh, finish. And because of that, he lost uh, quite a bit of points uh, in the championship race at the end of the year uh, in the championship uh, standings. So, um, yeah, times have changed and uh, no can do anymore. <laughs> uh, I love it. Well, we're going back and assigning retroactive penalties to the race steward himself. So uh, that's all kinds of fun. Let's move to a topic that one that is passionate for you and fond of this kid as well. This comes from uh Rethim no racer it says, Ari, you've advised and helped Renus VK in his American racing career transition asks once the IndyCar season gets underway, what will be your role? If any, and is there a way you can still help Renus during the race weekends while still being a race steward? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a question of uh, conflict of interest, of course. And uh, we don't have any because uh, pretty much like Roger Penske uh, will not have any conflicts of interest uh, being the owner of the series, but also the owner of the team. Um, you know, he likes to play level and he, and, uh, and fair and, and honest and uh, that's the way I'm going to do it with Renus. So Renus, I will still have dinner with Renus, and then I'll still give him some pointers, but nothing that will give him an advantage over the others. It's just basically, hey, when you start the race, watch for this, watch for that. And um, 
like I've been doing in the last couple of years. I'm not his manager. I'm somewhat of a, a mentor. Um, I would, I would have spoken to him, you know, when he was, uh, starting at a certain place and, uh, you know, I said, maybe you should watch for this, watch for that, watch for this guy. And I just gave him good advice. And then I gave his dad a lot of good business advice. Uh, there's people that, um, in the paddock that, you know, you can trust some people you cannot trust. I know them all. I've seen them all. And, um, he came up to me and he, a couple of years ago, for instance, uh, Marijn, uh, Renus' dad, said, you know, I think I'm going to have Renus run in the Indy Lights in, uh, at Indy in the Freedom 100. And um, I got a sponsor and this and that. And I go like, that's when he was driving in the Pro Master and he was leading that or he was in the battle for the championship. I said, well, why would you do that? What's, what, tell me the positives of that. Oh, you know, it's going to get publicity and this and that. I said, listen, that is not a good idea. Just imagine he would get into an accident and he gets hurt. Now his season is blown. And next year, his season for Indy Lights might be blown. It doesn't make any sense. Let him shine in Indy Lights when he's in, in Indy Lights, not before. And he took that advice and he didn't do it. And those are the kinds of things that I've helped the family with. Just because the family and I go back. My dad used to work on Marijn, his Formula Ford, back in the 90s. So we go back a long way. Wow. And, uh, so they're friends of ours. And um, Ari Jr. used to race against Marijn in, in Formula Ford in 97 and 98, 99, I think. So, you know, there, there's a history there. So it's not just a personal, it's not, there's no business thing going on with me and those guys whatsoever. It's all based on friendship and my support for him after I saw how good he was. I didn't know how good the kid was. But then one race weekend, I saw, man, this guy's really good. And um, so, yeah, and it's fun to see him go into the IndyCars, and, but there will definitely be no conflict of interest whatsoever. 10-4. Also, if, for instance, I have to make a call on him, I probably will leave it up to Max. Um, our system is Max and I go over the offense and then we see oh, penalize the guy or not. And if Max says penalize the guy and I say we're not going to penalize the guy, then Jay Fry steps in and he's in the deciding factor. So let's say there's a problem with Renus. I'm just going to leave it up to those two. I think you know? that makes perfect sense. You know, I'll, I'll give my input, but in the end, I'm not going to be the deciding factor. Maybe it's just a simple program of if you say not guilty, they so then we automatically punish him twice as bad. So, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah. We're going to be totally transparent on that, and it's going to be fine. Let's go to a question about questions from our pal, Jameen Tuttle. It says, Ari, what do people ask you about the most? Is it setting the poll record at Indy, winning Indy, getting slapped by A.J. Foyt, or maybe how rewarding it is working as a coach with young drivers? I think the most asked question always is, what is your favorite Indy 500 win, the first one or the second one? When I go to Texas, it's all about A.J. Um, and I getting in. Well, actually, A.J. got into a tussle. <laughs> me. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> so, but it's funny how uh, so many fans remember these moments like the earlier question about the bird, you know, in 1995, those are just things that kind of stand out. So, you know, I'm, I'm all about uh, behaving and being a good boy and being nice. But when I was driving, I really couldn't care about the, the, the politics or uh, let's put it this way, the, the advocates. I think, I think every sport, uh, and all the fans always in sport, enjoy in every sport kind of the bad boy, you know, and um, there's nothing wrong with that. So you know, I, I'm wandering off here, but um, yeah, yeah, it, it uh, when, when you get drivers up there and they just do their interview and it's all, uh, you know, media training interview and stuff, it's kind of boring. So, uh, you know, back then I used to like to kind of spruce it up a little bit. Let's go to let's go to Bryson Frank, Dave Heisen. 
uh, going to one of the most popular topics for you. Bryson says, Ari, your 1996 record-setting quality run at IMS is incredible to watch even to this day. Says that Renard must have been perfect. I seem to remember hearing that it was handling so well that you guys even considered removing the rear wing to trim out even more. Is there any (laughs) truth to this? And Dave yeah. <laughs> Heisen throws in, Ari, I recently heard the horsepower numbers for your record Indy qualifying run were less than we'd expect. That might have been me mentioning, I think, last week that folks might think you had 9 million horsepower. You had good horsepower, but it wasn't a 1994 Mercedes Ilmore Beast type motor. So uh, taking the wing off and power. Yeah, well, the, the the wing off is a funny story because we were so trimmed out that uh, we we couldn't go any less on the rear wing. And every time you make a rear wing adjustment, you lower the car, you tweak it here and there. You got to keep on adjusting as you lower it. I mean, take the wing out and then lower the car. So we were stuck at that wing setting, which was minus. I don't remember what it was. It was quite a big number. Minus everything. Yeah, you couldn't. Take less. It's, you couldn't take more wing out because then it would have a, an adverse effect on the aerodynamics. So then Tim said to me, "Well, he says Tim Wardrop, my engineer, who the great Tim, unfortunately has passed away, but Tim was such a dry person. Never, you know, he could he was so calm and always so thoughtful, thinking. You could always see him thinking. What if we uh, take two way wing off?" He said. I said. I go, F no, I'm driving this thing, not you. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the end of that idea. But yeah, he did think about it. I had no desire in it because, you know what, it probably, I could have probably worked up to it and figured it out a little bit, but there was no point in doing it. And that was the thing about Indianapolis that you, you have to realize as a driver if you don't have to pound around that place with a purpose of going faster, making the car better, then there's no purpose of being out there. Just to go out there to try stuff or the heck of it, you know, is definitely not, wasn't never on my agenda. So I was always very thoughtful of doing, and not because I didn't enjoy it, but I always tried to do the minimum amount to get the most out of it because the more you're out there, the more you're exposed to that concrete wall that really hurts when you hit it. Mm. So that's the kind of advice that I would give Renus, for instance. Wow. Like just don't, you know, don't be out there like, oh, this is fun. No. Only be out there if it has a reason. That's the kind of stuff that I talk to him about. But now I'm talking to the whole world about it, so there's no secret there. <laughs> How about from a power standpoint? What, what was it? I think 820? Is that the number that I remember has been mentioned? It was around, it was around like maybe 900. Oh, Okay. Um, but the, we had the Ford, uh, Cosworth, the XB, um, and we were not allowed and couldn't get the upgraded engine, which was the XD, I think. Yeah. I might have, I might have my, uh, numbers all for letters, but that, that engine had about another 30 to 40 horsepower or more. And I truly believe that it, cause that's the thing with, I, I said it then in 96, I said, you know, the only way I can go faster if I get more horsepower because we're trimmed out, you know, aerodynamic-wise, we just can't do anything. That was it. That was the absolute max of the car. And the car was really great to drive. It was not like never on edge. I never had a moment with that car. The car was the best car that I ever drove at the speedway. So, but in order to go quicker, we needed more horsepower. And obviously we couldn't get it. And uh, it would have been fun to do a 240 lap around the speedway, which I almost didn't practice with a draft. But the reality was that we just didn't have enough horsepower to get to that mark. Let's go, my man, to... been asked this again many times, but I'd love to hear the, the challenge part. Thomas Ayrton says, Ari is the only driver to win the Indy 500 in both cart and IRL spec cars, were there specific challenges that were really unique to that 1990 versus 1997, those drives? Mm-hmm. Well, and not to be like, sound, not to sound like 
um, to put the car down, but basically the 1990 car was a way better race car than the 1997 car from a lot of aspects. First of all, the, the weight uh, distribution of the car itself, the weight of the engine, the gearbox, and where it was located, it was just better than the 97 car. The 97 car was had too much weight on the rear wheels, on the rear axles. The gearbox was too heavy, and the engine was heavier than at the, at the compared to the 1990 car was the Chevy Elmore. And the car always had this feeling of, even at its best, the car had the feeling of the moment you turn in, you can just feel that weight transfer from the left side to the right outside rear wheel. And you were always very cautious of adding more steering because if you would add more steering, it would kind of tip it over that, that pendulum yeah. and the car would get loose. So the the precise driving with that car was just amazing how precise you had to be. The window was very small as far as not losing it, whereas the, we had a bigger window with the Raynard, bigger window with the Lola. Um, so that was the big difference. The cars, the IRL cars became better as the years, you know, 98, 99. 99 especially, the car was really good. Didn't have that issue. But the first year, 97, that was the big issue with that car, was the weight transfer, how you had to manage that. And you had to be very smooth and precise with your steering input and everything. So, um, yeah, definitely. And, and uh, for instance, I was never nervous to get into my Raynard and drive those laps. Mm. But I was always a little bit nervous and tense driving 218, so almost 20 miles an hour slower, which... Um, it's a big difference, but that car never felt at ease like the Raynard did. And it also shows you speed is relevant or irrelevant as far as uh, going around the speedway. You know, you could do a 218, you could do 210 miles an hour at the time and scare yourself, whereas with a good car, that handled really well, you could do 235 and it'd be like nothing. So it's all about the handling of the car and the speed will then drop dramatically if the handling goes off because you just cannot carry a car through turn one sideways like you do on a road course. Once weight was taken off that MCO gearbox in the IRL, once bell houses, bell housings were lightened in such, once some of that drastic weight was taken off the back of the cars as we went by each year as we got closer to 2000. Yeah. It's amazing yeah, where exactly. <laughs> if anything, you almost wish you could turn yourself around 180 degrees in the cockpit. Uh, but instead, uh, the thing was sitting hunched on its, uh, rear wheels, which not always the thing you love trying to turn into corners at India super high rates of speed. Uh, let's see. Let's get to another indie question here. Well, a lot of indie questions. Surprise. I don't know if you've heard about the Indianapolis 500, by the way. Interesting race. Uh, Todd Murray got a couple questions here. Um, Says, hey, I read a while back that one of your secrets to speed at the 500 was to use some exotic metal on the bottom of the chassis that allowed you to run the car much lower than everyone else. Is this true? Uh, and he also asked, how did you nurse that hand grenade Buick Menards engine to do the full 500 miles? No, we didn't have any trick uh, because uh, certain materials are allowed and others are not. So we did not have it. But we did. what we did do is with the, um, uh, can't find a word right now, but the, the plate that they attached to the bottom of the car it could be either wood, it could be aluminum, it could be brass. We would we would place it in certain areas for for better weight distribution. So everybody did that, but that was one thing. And of course, the the, the ride height of the car is determined by uh, ride height settings, the shocks, and how much downforce you run. For instance, in '93, the ride height that was set for my car in the race 
was based on going around 220 average. Well, for some reason, that race was very, the track was just very green for whatever reason. There was a lot, a lot of grip. So we ended up doing 208 and 9, 11, 12. And therefore, the ride height of the actual car was too high. Yeah. Because the car never went down as far as it should have because it never reached 220. And uh, therefore, the car was handling not that great in the race. And it felt very light through the turns. So, obviously, ride height is something that you set yourself. And you set it until you feel it touch the ground. And sometimes you can't even feel it so that the team will, after a run, they will look underneath the car with mirrors and they paint the bottom of it. And then they see the paint is scraped a little bit. And they go like, well, did you feel it uh, in the left rear there or on the right rear? And then I go, no, I didn't really feel it because it just touched so little, but it scraped a little bit of the paint off. And then you knew you were spot on because if you go too low and it creates a lot of drag and you just like putting the handbrake on the straightaway. And if you're, uh, so they, it's really set by, by us and by the team, by me and the team between the two of us. Um, and what was the other question of the, uh, the Buick? Yeah, how did you how did you nurse the uh, the American hand grenade to last five hundred miles? Well, it was a hand grenade if it ran at full boost. Well, uh, back then we had fifty five inches of boost in the race, and um, I had a pop off valve problem, and we only ran fifty inches. So that's probably the reason why it stayed together, because we never reached the full boost, and that's why I never I was never able to unlap myself, which was a bummer because the handling of the car was great, but just didn't have, believe it or not, we didn't have enough power because of the boost issue. Sure. Let's go to where we're going to go. Well, uh, one of your countrymen, Peter Nutt, uh, who asks, are we going to see... I recognize. Yeah, awesome guy. Huge supporter. Huge supporter. Asks, are you going to be doing any sim racing? He says it'd be fun to watch you doing some of those organized Legends races with Ray Hall and Andretti and... Frankiti and Fittipaldi. Does that stuff interest you at all, my man? Not even close. <laughs> nope. <laughs> uh, never look. been never been a video guy, a gamer, never been anything like that. And and I'm not gonna start now because I'll just be crashing everybody out by accident. So Wow. No, no. I mean I've done some sim stuff, you know, where you sit in the thing. And got all the screens, but I haven't done it since the a couple of years ago. I went into a friend of mine; uh, he had one in his uh, sim, and it was really, I mean, top of the line. And I got so sick, I got so unwell that the rest of the day I was just like, you know, I couldn't walk straight. I mean, it really affected me so much that, and that's why I've had that before a little bit, but now I had it really bad. So. That's why I'm not doing that stuff, because I just get really unwell. It's interesting, just a, a thing that I hear from a lot of veteran drivers who have incorporated sim racing yeah. into their, you know, the mid or latter stages of their career. And if it's not motion sickness, it's just the jarring, it's the jarring visuals like you talk to Dixon Bourdais, I've spoken with, you know, a lot of others. And most of them say, even in, you know, the zillion dollar true simulators, driver in the loop simulators, they never mm-hmm. learned how to drive visually. Obviously, that's a component. But I'm saying the thing that they learned to drive with and have trusted all these years, frankly, is their backside, feeling the car move. and. Yeah. You look at the the quote younger generation that's grown up with their home, you know, sim rigs and whatnot, and they have both. They've become accustomed to using their butt in the car, but using their eyes and looking at screens to do their driving, and they translate. You know, there's the ability to translate to sim racing so much faster than I've heard from a lot of the veterans. You're like, yeah, my eyes. Well, like truly, they start to bug out because. This is not the primary form of input my brain is, has been looking for to know what to do with the controls in front of me. Right, and um, I don't know, and I should ask some of these young guys this, 
But I don't know if, like Scott McLaughlin, he apparently has done this a lot since about for the last 10 years. Does it help him in his real racing? I'm not sure. It can't yeah. hurt. But I think if you don't ever do it, you still are going to be a, a good race car driver if you're a good race car driver. It's not like a requirement like, oh, you got to do this same thing, otherwise you'll never succeed. I don't think that's the case. But maybe it is. I need to ask Scott that, for instance, or, or what you're saying about Dixon. You know, Dixon got lapped in Barber. Well, he's never going to get lapped in Barber. You know what I mean? Yeah. Under norm. So, so yeah, I, I personally, just looking at Rossi and Dixon not being up there on the sim racing because they obviously haven't done it ever, um, I don't think it makes you a better race car driver. It helps you maybe learn the circuits that you've never been on, things like that. Let's go to a fun one from Joshua Kennedy. Thanks for sending this in, Josh. says, Ari, beyond Laguna Seca, did you have any other drives lined up with Jaguar in IMSA in 1992? And could you share some memories of driving the Jaguar XJR14, the heralded Formula One car with fenders? Yeah, it was a cool car. It was a really great car. The problem was it was built for midgets. And... um, (laughs) I mean, I could. I sat in that car for the first time on the weekend of the race, which was not ideal to begin with. But with the left hand, it had a left hand shift. The uh, H pattern shifting uh, linkage, and my head was up against the roll bar. My knees were up against the dash, and my elbow was too close to the rear bulkhead which caused me a lot of problems shifting and pretty much the whole race. I just forgot about finding second gear because if I found it and I would pull the lever back, my elbow would hit the bulkhead and I couldn't get it in anyway. Mm. So it was a extremely, because of that positioning of my, my taller body, as opposed to Derek Wallach who drove that thing, young mamas, uh, David Jones, um, Theo Fabi, all those guys. And I think that Cheever actually drove that thing, but I don't know if he drove that one or the models before. I think he did not drive the one with uh, that particular model. But uh, it was a great car. It was a great engine in there, the Ford engine, uh, the F1 engine that at the time they were using in the Benetton F1 cars. Um, so I did finish the race. I think I finished fourth, but it was not a glorious uh, race for me, for sure. The sad thing about that for me was if it had been constructed in a slightly different manner or if you, by chance, were an inch or two shorter and an inch or two narrower, I can only imagine the devastation you would have brought in that car because, again, it's one of the two or three greatest prototypes ever. Uh, It just, this thing was, uh, its capabilities were beyond almost anything. The thought of you in that going up against a PJ Jones or a Juan Manuel Fangio the second and their All American racers, Eagle Mark threes. I mean, that's, but tr- you know, with no restrictions, no limitations, you able to get every gear, your head and elbows and knees not being, you know, hammered the whole time, just in the flow. Ah, oh, man, that would have been amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I had that with the Nissan. The Nissan uh, in 1992, we ran at Sebring. Um, that was such a fun car to drive with a lot of horsepower, a lot of grip. It also got out of shape every now and then, which really caught your attention. But running that thing and driving it on the limit at Sebring in 92 was one of my best experiences ever. And um, that's why um, the same year later, I drove the Jaguar and I just I just physically could not drive that car the way that a, that a car needs to be driven. So it was it was a bummer from from that perspective because I was going to do another race uh, with that car, but it was just not. I couldn't drive it properly, so we didn't do that last race that they had that year. I forget I forget where that was, um, but I didn't do that last race. Mm. Let's move to Brett Ross. 
who says, Ari, what are your favorite memories about driving in the IROC series? Well, not 1998 at Indy, I can tell you that. <laughs> by by chance, <laughs> what happened there? I have no idea. Uh, How you doing? I'm kidding. Yes, I mean, good Lord. That, that's one <laughs> of those highlights that are going to be playing forever, unfortunately. I was the uh, crash test dummy for the uh, first uh, softball to yes. appear at the Speedway, and it happened to be on the inside of turn four, thank goodness, because if without that uh, primitive but yet uh, groundbreaking softball idea. Um, I don't think I would be sitting here today because that was a hard hit. They're still cleaning up the uh, styrofoam and whatnot uh, that happened. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. I, you know, I had my favorite moment was uh, one year. I mean, it was kind of funny. Um, I was uh, in Daytona. I don't remember what year. And me and Jeff Gordon had fallen back from the lead four or five cars. And he and I worked together really well. And we got back up there. And the moment I got back up there um, with him, actually pushing him up there, um, it made me chuckle because I go like, okay, that's how it works. Because we got up to the group and then he just went, chip, 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 went to the front and he left me kind of hanging there. And that was it. He won the race. I finished fifth. But it was kind of funny how... Um, the NASCAR drivers uh, sometimes help you or not. Most of the times they, they didn't. And, but, the, but nobody really helped each other when it came to the last couple of laps anyway, which is not, and that's how it's supposed to be. But um, we, I felt a little bit uh, at a disadvantage just because those guys knew so good how to draft. And admittedly, so I had no clue about drafting. But it was still fun to do. I had uh, some good times there. And it gave me a whole different perspective and respect towards NASCAR drivers. And um, I, I, uh, I definitely knew then that they were capable of a lot more things that people gave them credit for. Mm. And you see that now, you see. I mean, and then every, you know, every IndyCar guy that has gone there, not everybody has been successful. Um, just because it's a whole different discipline. They grew up with that kind of weight and the kind of tire, tire management, with, which is really hard to pick up in a couple of races. So, yeah, they, those guys know their stuff. Got our cat Rocky, by the way, starting to meow and complain. He wants to be fed. Uh, let's get to the last couple of questions here. Uh, I've got one from Jeremy Charette, who says, Ari, how different... Will the Zandvoort circuit be now that your current corner has 19 degrees of banking? And uh, Daniel Kincaid asks, are you going to try and attend the Dutch Grand Prix? Well, well I was scheduled to uh, go at the end of the month here. I had my plane ticket was already lined up, so I was going to be there. But, of course, it's been postponed, and we don't know when it will happen. Um, it's un- unlikely I will be there just because our season is going to be if their season has started, let's say whenever, then our, our season will have started too. So probably I'll have a schedule conflict. But the corner, I went there to open up the track officially with Max Verstappen, which was a, a lot of fun. That was um, a great video. That was fun to watch. Yeah, and, and Max was, uh, you know, Max is super cool, super relaxed, and always uh, always wants to drive, go fast and, and drive fast. And he drove me around in the Aston Martin there, and he was just amazing how super fast the guy goes and his reaction time. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely not one of the world's best for nothing after driving with him at Aston Martin. It was clear why, but that corner is really, it, it looks spectacular and it made the track different than most tracks, but it, and coincidentally, my name was already attached to the corner and they made it into a bank corner. And it was, uh, I guess, Charlie Whiting, uh, his idea to do that in order to, make that that corner make it part of the straightaway just because the original straightaway was just too short for F1. And now with this bank corner, which is going to be an easy flat out corner for them, um, it will enable them to open up the DRS before the corner and in a way extend the straightaway. And then that will hopefully give them a chance to overtake to turn one, which is called the Tarzan corner. 
So it's it's uh, it's what they've done there is incredible. The work they've done to the track, and unfortunately, uh, the virus hit everybody, and everything had to be postponed. But the expectations were that they were going to have a sold out, you know, uh, track for the next three years. They sold out, you know, became a lottery in order to buy a ticket because they just sold out, and it would have been really fun to see. But it will happen eventually. Let's go to our pal J.J. Gertler, who says, Mr. Leindyke, one of my favorite pieces of racing art is a print of Mark Donahue's McLaren I bought from your gallery in Indianapolis. He asks, what inspired uh-huh. you to go into the art business, and what's the favorite piece of art in your personal collection? Well, I've got this piece by Alfredo. I always kind of mix up his name with De La Maria or De La Rosa. He's an Argentinian artist, and it's a fanjo going around the hairpin, going around the hairpin, not the hairpin, but the corner by the casino mm-hmm. in the front of the, ho- the hotel in Monte Carlo. It's a mag- magnificent piece. And uh, I've always been interested in art. I had a lot of, every time I would go to Phoenix back in the 80s, I would go to this one gallery, and I just made it a habit of every time I go to Phoenix, I go there and I buy something and then they would ship it to me. And um, so I've always had an interest in art. I've had an interest in in cars in that respect, like not just cars, but the, the beauty of it, the design of certain cars, mainly Italian, um, the old Mercedes cars. And so I've had a lot of interests in a lot of different things, sculptures and you name it. So one year uh, I met a Dutch artist by the name of Frank Good and he made paintings looking a little bit like Leroy Neiman's stuff, which I also like that way, uh, that art. So I said, you know what, uh, we, we were talking and we just decided to open up a gallery here in Scottsdale. And uh, so I opened up the Ireland Art Gallery and it was all about sports art, but later it became only racing. And it wasn't successful. It was just more of a hobby of mine. I didn't do any like research, you know, of the traffic and how many people would come into the store. I just did it because I thought it was fun. And then when I closed the one down here after the lease was up, um, it took too much time while I was still racing. Then uh, somebody, uh, the motorsports collector, offered to open the store up in Indianapolis because that, that was really his store, but he used my name for it. And... Uh, so that's how I kind of went in that close after a couple of years. And but it's amazing how much and how many people, that's the one topic that always surprised me, how many people knew about it that I had an art gallery. Mm. couple here to go, and I love them. Uh, we're going to go to Stephen Killsdog. says, Ari, what are your recollections of the 1987 season? The impression I get is while the Lola was a better chassis, your Hemelgarn team did better than most, were able to with that March 87C chassis. That was a good season for me because I had a really lousy season in 86. And uh, my sponsor at the time of the team I drove for, Provimi Racing. Yep. Um, we, as a team, in order to be more successful, we needed sponsorship from outside and we needed a lot more uh, support financially to be able to go testing and hire more people. We were really a small team. And um, I was able to to convince uh, the owner to partner up with Hamilton Racing because Hamilton Racing had a few sponsors. And then with the Provini deal, then we had a better program. And that really showed. We finished uh, a lot of races. We only had one podium in Phoenix. We had a bunch of fourth places, fifth places. Yeah, it was a good team. We struggled on the road courses with that thing. And the other thing that we struggled with was uh, horsepower. But the handling of the car was really good on the ovals. And that, you know, all credit due to, again, uh, Tim Wardrop. That's where I worked. That's when I worked with Tim Wardrop for the first time. And the second time I worked with Tim was at Menards in 95. And then when Treadway, Fred Treadway started his team and asked me, who want to hire as an engineer? I said, we need to have Tim. If we don't get Tim, it's, I'm not 
sure if I even want to. So I put a lot of faith and trust in Tim, and that started in 1987. Another question here, similar looking back stuff that I love. Uh, Andrew C., Ari, what are your best Dick Simon stories, and do you believe he was the famous robber, D.B. Cooper? Yeah, that was all before my time, so I have no clue. I didn't even, I really don't even know that story. Uh, I just, what you're just telling me now is, that's all I know. But um, Dick was an amazing guy who could make, you know, he could take a quarter and he could make it into a dollar the way he operated his team. And he had to do that just because he never had the funding of, of any of the big teams. So in that regard, he was very good. Uh, the problem was, like in 88, we were, you know, we should have won Phoenix. We were so competitive in Portland. We should have won there. But I would arrive. I would be ready to get my uh, get into the pits to make my stop. And I just knew, okay, well, I wonder if I lose one or two positions here. Because... We had guys on the team that were not full-time. Sometimes we had weekend warriors. And with a, the weekend warrior program where a guy comes in just for the race weekend, he's not going to be that tuned in uh, to the Penske guy who's there basically all week practicing in the back of the shop doing pit stops. So um, that was a bit of a disadvantage with him, uh, with his team, I mean. And then the other thing, which was a great advantage, he had a knack for setting up the car on the oval. He just, he knew so much. He could have been an engineer. And together with the engineer that we had and Dick there, we had some phenomenal races on the ovals. So, uh, yeah, and, and, and Dick Simon is exactly 20 years older than me. We were both born on uh, September 21st. And uh, one day, uh, one year, that was 88 or 89, I, both, I drove for him two years Um they were doing a little thing for us for our birthday, and Dick came out of the uh, the hospitality coach. Uh, he came out of it walking uh, towards me with a wig on, and we both were standing there with really long hair, except mine was mine and his wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, love. I love the fact that Dick Simon is just getting a lot of attention recently. Uh, so, good man. Good, good man. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Well, let's take two more and then say farewell. Uh, we've got Brian Burrell and Mike Jablo who ask similar questions. Uh, Brian says, would love to hear you discuss your freelancing with Chip Ganassi Racing and Cart at Fontana. Um, and then also Mike Jablo asks about prior to this when you were a full-time guy, and just what it was like driving for Chip in the early days before he and that team was known as Chip Ganassi Racing with the championships and such. Curious if you can share any good chip stories as well, what it was like back in the early days and even coming back to uh, to help out in a pinch. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Me and Chip got along pretty good, although we had our little spats. But, you know, 93 driving for him was a real struggle because um, the Lola just, it just didn't handle good. They just couldn't put the power down properly, and it just didn't feel planted on the ovals. Um and to make a long story short, towards the end of the year, um, they made a drastic change to the rear suspension of the car, and um, it transformed the car into a real race car. But by then it was too late. I was already let go. Uh, Michael Andretti was coming in. But I was, uh, with that setup in Nazareth, I was running in the top three before we had an oil cooler problem. So that would have been, the car felt phenomenal there. Whereas the week before, the old suspension, I actually parked the car in New Hampshire. I literally parked it because it was undrivable. And, and with that whole rear arrangement suspension set up, um, it was super competitive and drivable in Nashville. And then we went to mid-Ohio. I picked up a puncture on the first lap and came back to finish fifth right behind third and fourth. Um, so the car was super good there, too. I was flying there. And then in Laguna, we finished third behind the two Penske's. So we were best of the rest. So if only that car in the beginning of the year would have been like the end of the year, it would have been a whole different story. I might have, I might have been driving for Chip for years. And um, so 
So the beginning of the year, a good chip story is I had uh, took my nose off somewhere. I had a huge crash in Long Beach. I had a lot of incidents. And Chip was like, man, he says, you know, you're going to make me bankrupt. <laughs> um, you know, you crashed a car in Long Beach and you took the nose off there. And now you took another nose off. I said, hey, man, if this, this hobby is too expensive for you, go do something else. <laughs> ah, how did he so, how did yeah. he receive that one uh fine because really? we were able to talk like that to each other oh and we were we were always open with each other honest with each other um you know he hired michael andretti he never did that behind my back he was open about it way before it was announced and me and chip uh, in that regard always were just there was transparency there, and that was. He's a true racer, and he he treated me like a true racer as well. And then, and then, you know, the, we've always been. I would go to card races, champ car races, and I would be a guest of Chip. I would be hanging around there for many years, even while driving the IRL. I never got involved in the politics of politics of IRL and, and IndyCar or uh, card, and. Um, so that's when, when Alex had his accident, I was, I had just done an appearance in New York. I came home really late Friday night. I think it was Friday or I don't remember. Yeah, Friday. So Saturday morning, I'm just kind of having my coffee and waking up slowly. And then he called me, he says, Hey, we need you over here. You want to come and drive? And I'm going, he said, we'll send the jet over and then maybe, maybe you can get a couple laps in today. Yeah, sure. I'll come over. We never talked about, you know, pay or this or that. We just, I go, yeah, I'll see you. Pick me up. And then, uh, and then in the race, of course, you know what happened there with the big accident, which was huge accident. Um, then, uh, Art Myers spun in front of me and I really had nowhere to go and hit him. And the lights went out for quite a while. Hmm. Arnd Meyer doing Arnd Meyer things, sadly. Yeah. I always remember him on the interview like, yeah, somebody hit me from behind. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> from behind after you spun. <laughs> I hit you with 207 miles an hour to be exact. It's <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> amazing. You look at that impact and you go like, you know, how could somebody survive? So luckily enough, I did. So we've we've spoken about this before, but I've never thought to ask the question. So did Chip come up to you at some point afterwards and say, "Damn it, Lion Dyke, you're going to make me go bankrupt. You're going to go broke with all these crashes you're having." Or did you tell him to f off? You mean on the, the Fontana deal? Yes, I think he made money over that because he had all the cars insured. <laughs> oh, Jesus. He made more money uh, than if we would have won the race. See, you sacrificed your body and your brain to actually make good on that complaint of his from 1993. See, you're such a giving oh, and loving yeah, guy. Yeah. Unwillingly. Unknowingly. Uh, unwillingly. Well, the final... Uh, but, go ahead. Sorry, brother. But yeah, no, no just, you know, great stories, uh, great people. We've been around in racing, and it's been really a, a cherished life, so to speak. I mean, you know, you... you your hobby becomes your profession, and yeah, there's a lot of pressure, but hey, you know, it's not like the pressure uh, a lot of people have to face on a daily basis. And um, so, yeah, for uh, for guys like all our guys, all our IndyCar drivers, you know, they love what they do. They're very fortunate, and uh, it's, uh, I would say it's a blessing if you can live a life like that. I always tell folks, what we do isn't real. You know, it's, there's so much enjoyment in it. Not as if we don't work incredibly hard, but, you know, motor racing goes away. It would be sad, but we're not a critical function. Uh, You know, we're here to do things to feed ourselves and our competitive spirit, hopefully entertain, make some people happy, create some thrills, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, really the life we live compared to someone who is waking up each morning jumping on the back of a garbage truck and doing that for eight to 10 hours. We got no, mm-hmm. com- we've got no complaints here. Absolutely no, no. none. No. And it's still, I still get really a kick out of 
the fact, you know, on Thursdays I usually go to the race and then uh, to the tracks and then I get there and, you know, that Sunday morning when the race is about to happen, I still get like these butterflies, but now I'm in race control. Not the same kind of butterflies, but, you know, they're there and it's that, that that's a good feeling. Mm. I will admit to uh, having similar, not at all times, but uh, there's still, that still happens, which yeah, 30 plus years in of, my career, I, I that makes me happy to know that's the case. Yeah, yeah the anticipation and uh, of what's going to happen here in turn one, and then, you know, the anticipation of who's going to win at the end of the day, especially at Indianapolis, which will always be a special place for pretty much everybody. Um, who loves racing. So yeah, it's very cool to experience that still. Last item we have comes in from a man, Thomas Booth says, Ari is a driver who is always known for his luscious hair. Who do you think is the best hair in racing today? Mm. At one point it was Danica Patrick, but uh, let's see. I don't know. I don't really really pay that much attention to these guys' hairstyles, to be honest with you. But don't you love the fact that folks associate your hair with meaning you're the ultimate judge of hair and racing? I mean, that that's pretty yeah, damn yeah. cool. I'm the ex- yeah, I'm the expert now. Well, uh, G- Gio Vinazzi has some good hair going on in F1 there, driving for Alfa Mayo. There we go. So, Colton Herta, um, I would say he definitely put some Colton work Herta into that. going on pretty good, yeah. Almost a, uh, a male got- beehive haircut at some points. And then you had um, J.R. Hildebrandt. I said, you know, you, you the hair is good, but you need to lose the, the facial hair. There's too much hair, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> Lewis Hamilton? Like uh, I'll throw it. Lewis? Yeah. He, I mean, that's, I that like, takes time. I don't like the braided stuff. I'm not into the braided stuff. But, uh, yeah, who else? Who else is running around? The, in NASCAR, we had uh, Ryan Blaney, right? Yeah, he he was... I thought he was putting in a little too much work, though. You don't want it to look like you put in the effort. That's the key, right? <laughs> yeah. Says the guy who has a hat on 99% of the time when he's at a motor racing circuit, and people actually just recently learned I have hair on top of my head, like I'm one to speak. Well, thanks as always, my friend. Uh, appreciate yeah, you awesome. and taking time for us. I really enjoyed it. A um, bunch of good questions. Thank God nothing too personal. And uh, thank you. Thanks again to our man from Hall and Ari Lyondike. Good, good stuff. The uh, <laughs> Some of the Jag stories, the Chip stories, the, the Dick stories. The Dick stories? I don't know. How's this? It did come out the way that I meant, but it maybe, I don't know, I could have phrased that one better um, hashtag phrasing uh, hashtag archer uh, thanks for listening here we are yet again, done with another episode, and I want to thank, as always, Cooper Tires, they're really cool, they really are, they're really, really cool uh, y'all remember not too long ago where I mentioned uh, they just helped out my niece who was having to drive from Los Angeles to Michigan to go to college and was seriously concerned about getting through the snow uh, without asking. They stepped right up to take care of her. They do a lot of stuff like that. Just being good, good people, independent of being awesome business folk. Justice Brothers, man, beautifully named. I mean, I wish my last name was Justice. That's just awesome. Marshall Justice, right? Eh, I got Pruitt. But beautiful last name that thing's amazing but what they do for people and the care that they extend and the love they give to their employees and their distributors you know that's another thing too that cannot be undersold and then uh, our pals north of the border at torontomotorsports.com who are can't be in the business can't be in the uh the office looking after clients and customers because everyone has to stay home and yet they are doing their best to handle mail orders and otherwise and get t-shirts and other stuff out to y'all as they get given away and finally bell racing helmets usa yet again uh, they're doing their best to get stuck in here in 
esports, sim racing, iRacing as much as possible, and to give us love in many, many, many places. So just thank you, family. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as I listen to our cat Rocky snore next to me, thanks, buddy. Great job of he's resting up for his nap right now. He's done a lot of good work today. Uh, just really thankful. Seriously, super thankful of what you all bring to me and allow me to do each week using your questions, your perspectives, your humor to put on this little dog and pony show of mine that uh, continues to go. Only a couple episodes away from 800, by the way. I don't know if that's amazing or depressing. Uh, You be the judge. All right, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. We're going to say thank you and look forward to speaking to you very soon.